First Samuel chapter 25 is where we pick up our study as we're going through First Samuel. And chapter 25 is really a pivotal chapter in the life of David. And it's a chapter that reads like a six-act play. In Act 1, we see the removal of a godly influence, the death of Samuel, there in verse 1. In Act 2, we see the response of a graceless man. In Act 3, we see the response of a man whose pride has been wounded, being David. In Act 4, we see the intervention of a gracious woman. In Act 5, we see the response of a humbled man. And then finally, in Act 6, we see the judgment of a righteous God. That's how we're going to look at this chapter tonight. We begin with Act 1, the removal of a godly influence. Verse 1, it says, Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him, and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So here we see that this great man, Samuel, this great prophet who was dedicated to the work of the Lord, who served the Lord from his very youngest of days as his mom brought him there to the priest where Eli was there and at the the tabernacle and he brought her, her son and dedicated him there to the Lord. And from his youngest of days, he served the Lord. And now this old prophet, this godly man, this influence there in Israel, he dies. Now, you need to understand that this would have been a major blow to David. And this might be the reason for his poor behavior that we see here in this chapter. We're going to see David react in a very unusual way. We're going to see him react in a way where his you know, anger kind of gets the best of him here. And, and it could very well be that, that his response is the reaction. It doesn't make, it's not an excuse for it, but it might give us some understanding to the fact that, that this was a big thing. This was a big blow because Samuel had been David's mentor. He had been his confidant. David was accountable to Samuel. He received counsel and instruction and direction from Samuel. But now the prophet's death would mean that his stabilizing influence, the stabilizing influence that he had been in David's life would now be removed. Plus, it was only Samuel and Jonathan who really at this particular time seemed to know from the Lord that David was anointed to be the next king in Israel. And so now one of those confidants, one of those leaders, one of those men who would be bearing witness to David and to others that David was the anointed one, that he was going to be the next king, that he was the man after God's own heart that that, that the Lord had spoke of. Now one of them was gone. Samuel dying here. So this had to be a very discouraging time in David's life, and it sort of sets the stage for what transpires in the next scene. We pick it up in verse 2. Now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. 
When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you and peace to your house and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand, to your servants, and to your son David. And so David's young men came, and they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David, and waited. And then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men when I do not know where they are from? Now here we see the beginning of Act 2. And in Act 2, we're introduced to a graceless man by the name of Nabal. He lived in Maon. He had a business in Carmel. And it tells us here that he was a very rich man. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And the Hebrew word for rich, it means heavy. And so it means the idea by, by using that word is this guy was loaded. I mean, he just had the bucks, this guy Nabal did. And as we think about riches, you know, one of the things that we need to understand is that there are four kinds of riches. There are those who are rich in what they have. They're rich in their material possessions. They maybe have a a big house and they drive a fancy car. They're rich in what they have. There are riches in what you do. Some of you are rich in the sense that you love your occupation. You love what you do. You love what you're, you're called to. And, and you're rich in that way. There are, are those who are rich in what they know. They're sharp. They're intelligent. We might say that they possess a wealth of knowledge. And then there are those who are rich in what you are. Or rich in who you are. And that speaks of the riches of character. Having a good character. Being a, a, a man a, or a woman of, of good reputation. Nabal was a very rich man, but he was only rich in what he had, which is the lowest form of riches. It was the philosopher Seneca who said, A great fortune can result in great slavery. And oftentimes that's what happens to the person who is only rich in their wealth, is they become a slave to their possessions. That was Nabal. Nabal's name, it means fool. And the scriptures define the fool as a man who acts like there is no God. That was Nabal. He lived his life in such a way like, hey, God didn't exist. And he was a self-made man. Hey, man, I made myself this way. And I got all these sheep and all these goats. And I got this nice house. And, you know, I made it through my hard work. That was Nabal. He was a guy who acted like there was no God. He lived for himself. He hoarded his riches. Furthermore, in verse 3, we're told that he was harsh. The word harsh here means that he was stubborn and belligerent. That's the kind of man that Nabal was. And it also tells us that he was evil in his dealings. This means that he was dishonest. 
And so we get an idea that part of his riches maybe came from his shrewd and dishonest business dealings. And it paints a picture here of this man who was greedy and demanding and deceptive. He was ruthless. He was unfair. That was Nabal. But, you know, as we look at Nabal's life, as you study maybe those who had riches really throughout history, One of the things that you understand, those of you going through the home fellowship studying in Ecclesiastes, you're realizing this as you're going through, is riches don't make for happiness. Solomon, richest guy in the world. And what does he say? Man, it's all vanity. It's vanity. It doesn't add up to anything. In 1923, at the Edgewater Hotel, Beach Hotel in Chicago, Illinois, seven of the most powerful money magnets in the world gathered for a meeting. These seven, if they combined their resources and their assets, they controlled more money than the U.S. Treasury. In that group were such men as Charles Schwab. He was the president of a steel company. Richard Whitney was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Arthur Cutton was a wheat speculator. Albert Fall was the president, uh, presidential cabinet member, but he was personally a very wealthy man. Je- Jesse Livermore was one of the greatest investors on Wall Street in his generation. Leon Frazier was the president of the International Bank of Settlements. And Ivan Kruger He headed the largest monopoly in the whole United States. It was quite an impressive group of men. But consider this same group of guys, these guys that held more money in all their assets put together than, than the whole U.S. Treasury. I mean, these guys were money magnets in that day. Consider this same group later in life. Charles Schwab, he died penniless. Richard Whitney was sent to prison or spent the rest of his life serving a sentence in a Sing Sing prison. Arthur Cutton, that great wheat speculator, became bankrupt. Albert Fall, he also went to prison but was pardoned from a federal prison so that he might go home and die. Leon Frazier, the president of that big international bank, he committed suicide. Jesse Livermore, Ivan Kruger, they also both committed suicide. All seven of these men, these big money magnets, had lives that were disasters before they left planet Earth. What was the mistake they made? They made the mistake of thinking that that what they had and what they controlled belonged to them. That's the same mistake that Nabal makes here. In thinking that what he had, what he possessed, that it belonged to him. The problem begins in verse 4 when he was shearing his sheep there in Carmel. Now, this was harvest time for a sheep rancher. And and by ancient traditions, sheep shearing time was a time of lavish hospitality toward others. Sheep shearing was traditionally celebrated by feasting with enough to spare, especially for those who guarded and protected your flocks. You see, it was a common practice in those days for soldiers who were out on patrol, who were out stationed in the fields in certain regions that they would protect the shepherds and their sheep from the Philistine invaders and from the Bedouins who were a threat in the area. So these guys would, you know, as part of their job, they would protect the, 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 the shepherds and they would protect the, the ranches. Well, that's what David and his men were doing. 
They were out, camped out. They're still on the run, still fleeing, still you know, hiding from Saul. But they found this area in this place where, where it was a refuge for them. And while they were there, they protected Nabal's flocks. They protected his shepherds. And now at shearing time, it was a time where it was a practice. It was kind of the custom to repay those soldiers by having a feast, inviting them to come and sending them on their way with a great deal of provision. It was kind of like going to a restaurant and tipping your waiter. You know, it's not something that's required you know, it's not like there's a law that if you don't tip the, the waiter, they're going to arrest you when you walk out the door. You know, but, but it was a common practice. It was, it was courtesy to do that. In fact, when I go to restaurants and I even, even if the service is bad, I'll tip the waiter or the waitress because... And oftentimes I don't want to do it. I'm fighting it because, man, that was just lousy service. And, but, you know, we start every meal when we're in a restaurant. We pray. And so we're making a statement right there that we're Christians, that we're believers. Oftentimes, my wife and I, on, on our date day, we'll go out and we'll go somewhere to a restaurant to have breakfast or lunch. And we bring our Bibles and we bring our journals and they're sitting right there on the table. And it's obvious, hey, these people must be religious. You know, they got their Bibles with them, you know, to eat. You know, how weird is that? And, and, and so we'll go and do that. And, 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 and so because of that, because I know that, okay, we're going to make a statement here. We'll tip the waitress or the waiter. No matter how bad, you know, the service or how good, you know, uh, it, it is. Well, that was kind of the idea here. It was kind of like tipping uh, the, the waiter or the waitress. It wasn't required, but it was the custom. And so David sends his men to Nabal seeking compensation. But Nabal responds in a very rude and arrogant way. He's like, who's David? Who's this son of Jesse? Now, everyone in Israel knew who David was. Everyone in Israel knew of the great battles that he had fought and the victories that he had had. His name had spread throughout the land. So Nabal, he's just being a jerk here. You know, it's not like he doesn't know who David is. He's just being obnoxious. He's just being a jerk. Who's this David character anyway? Who's the son of Jesse? And, you know, he's just another one of these servants that's run off from his master. And by saying that, he was further insulting David because that wasn't true. That wasn't true. Well, this leads us to act number three, where we see the man whose pride was wounded. We pick it up in verse 12. So David's young men turned on their heels. The idea there is kind of like, man, you ain't going to talk about our master like that. And so they make a real quick turnaround and they're heading on their way back home. And they went back and they came and told him all these words. And then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. And so every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. So David here reacts to Nabal's insulting response by saying, I'm going to show him who I am. He's asking, who's David? I'm going to show him who I am. I'm going to show him who he's dealing with. He doesn't have a clue who he's dealing with. It's kind of that male macho thing here, you know. It's like Clint Eastwood with his beady little eyes saying, go ahead, make my day. You know, that's, that's kind of the idea here with David. It's, it's Rocky saying to Mr. T, you know, it's him calling out, you want a piece of me? You know, bring it on. You know, if you remember Rocky in that, it's like, oh, you want a piece of me? You know, that's kind of what he's, that's what David's doing here. 
I'm going to show him. You know, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. David says to his men, every man gird on his sword. And in our modern way of speaking, David would have said, okay, guys, lock and load. You know, come on, we're going to go get get him. In a Western, he would have said, okay, come on, mount up, boys. Let's, let's be on our way. Let's go and show this guy. David was ready to fight. Skip over to verse 21. We get an insight into his intent here. Now, David had said, surely in vain I have protected all this fellow and has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do also and more so to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. David says, man, I'm going to go and just massacre Nabal and all of his servants. Any male that is in, you know, shot of my bow, he's history. Now, this was a way overreaction here for David. Him coming to Nabal with 400 men, that's like you and I taking a shotgun to kill a, a, a cockroach. You know, I mean, that's the idea. Can you imagine? You, know, you get your shotgun, you know, and the little roach right there. I mean, that's the idea here. That's what it's like way overreaction. I mean, this guy's a farmer and David's coming, you know, with his his mighty men and they're just going to come in and and do some damage, you know, some big damage here. It was overreaction. He was intent on a massacre. His eyes were beaming red with blood. Why? David's pride was wounded here. That's why his pride was wounded. You know, pride always responds in the flesh. That's what's happening here. David's like, you know, how dare he treat me like this? How dare he say he doesn't know who I am? You know, David responded so well to the threats and the the shenanigans of, of King Saul. But here we see him. He's just completely in the flesh. Why? Because his pride, his pride was wounded. Now, before you and I are too hard on David, have you ever done something for someone, a kind thing, and they didn't say thank you? They didn't acknowledge it? How'd you respond? Did you say to yourself, see if I ever do that for them again? You know, I'm kind of domestically challenged. Um, I'm not the best when it comes to helping out around the house. But there are times when maybe Denise is at the women's ministry Monday night. And we have dinner and she leaves and I'll do the dishes. And I'll put them all away and I'll clean up the kitchen. And by the time she gets home, you know, I'm in... I'm upstairs in, in bed, and, and she'll come up, and she doesn't say a word sometimes. You know? It's not like, gee, honey, thanks so much for doing the dishes. You know? Or, gosh, you did a good job. Or, you know. and, and I'll sit there, and I'll wait. You know? <laughs> kind of looking at her like, okay, come on. You know? Now, I do that to her all the time. You know? She'll clean or rearrange the the furniture and 
I don't even notice it, you know. It's like I'm just oblivious. But, but it's so funny because I'll find myself, you know, she'll, she'll come, she'll go, you know, get in bed, and she doesn't say a word. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm never going to do that again, you know. I'm not going to clean the kitchen for her. I mean, that, that's our pride, though. That's pride when we do that. It's pride when we react in that way. Why did you do it in the first place? That kind deed, that act, was it to get a pat on the back? Or were you doing it because it was the right thing to do? Were you doing it for the Lord? You know, it was C.S. Lewis who said this, The pleasure of pride is like the pleasure of scratching. If there is an itch, one does want to scratch. But it's much nicer to have neither the itch nor the scratch. Then he says, as long as we have the itch of self-regard, we shall want the pleasure of self-approval. But the happiest moments are those when we forget our precious selves and have neither, but have everything else, God and those around us instead. I like that. The pleasure of pride is like the pleasure of scratching. If there's an itch, you want to scratch it. Haven't you found that to be true? I mean, it can be the worst thing when you have a, you know, an itch and it's like, honey, please, right now, get over here. You've know, you got to scratch my back. And that's so often the way pride can be. It's like, man, I've got to get my ego stroked. You know, I've got to get somebody to, to acknowledge what I'm doing. You know, I've got to get whatever it might be. It was Billy Graham who said, the smallest package I ever saw was a man wrapped wholly in himself. David is becoming very small here because of his wounded pride. He's becoming very small. That takes us to Act 4, where we see the intervention of a gracious woman. We meet Abigail. Now, we first were introduced to Abigail in verse 3, where we are told that she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful in appearance. The Bible gives Abigail great praise when it says that she was beautiful in appearance because the only other women in the Bible that are referred to or given this Hebrew title or this Hebrew phrase were Rachel in Genesis 29 verse 7 and Esther in Esther chapter 2 verse 7. So Nabal's wife was a very beautiful woman. I mean, she singled out in scripture with these two other women as being just a knockout, you could say. I mean, she had it going on. She was a, a good-looking gal, and she was wise. You know, she was understanding, in contrast to Nabal himself. I mean, she was a smart gal. She was a good-looking gal. Now, the thing that, that comes into my mind when I read this is, okay, how did this great-looking gal, this smart, intelligent gal, get hooked up with this idiot, you know? How did that happen? Well, it's, it's obvious, and we can understand that in those days, they had arranged marriages. And so that's probably how they got hooked up, is that her father gave her to Nabal in order to benefit from Nabal's riches. And many women were sacrificed for that very reason in that day, because the guy to get the gal, he had to pay a dowry. And so the, the, the guy would be looking for the wealthiest guy that he could find, because he knew, you know, man, my daughter getting married to him, that's going to, you know, I can retire, you know, after this. And so oftentimes that's what happened. That's probably what happened with her is that she got hooked up with him because of an arranged marriage. But here's the thing. 
There are many Abigails today who are in that place, not because of a marriage that was arranged, but because they chose to be. It's remarkable how many Abigails are married or get married to Nabals. What I mean by this, you single sisters, listen up. Great sisters, great gals in the Lord who get hooked up with a loser for all the wrong reasons. Well, he's rich. Man, he treats me so good. The Christian guys, they don't pay any attention to me. You know, when I come to church, the Christian guys, they're all weird. You know, I hear these kind of things. <laughs> and so what happens? You know, a Nabal starts showing them some attention. And instead of waiting for God's choice, they start hanging out with the first Nabal that comes along and shows them an attention. And she starts thinking, oh, he's really nice. And I'll convert him. (laughs) I'm going to convert him, man. But you know what? It never works. It never works. What happens? Ask Steve. Ask Howard. We've We've all experienced it. A couple years later, there you are crying in my office. Brokenhearted. I married a Nabal. Now, I've actually never had anybody say that to me just like that. (laughs) But when they start describing who they're married to, that's what I think. She married Nabal, you know. That's what it is. It's so sad. I mean, we can laugh about it, but it happens far too often. And it doesn't work out. Single gal, set your sights on a godly man. Wait for that guy that God will bring. Who's going to love the Lord and love you the way that the Lord would have him to. Well, Abigail, she's married not by choice, by arrangement to this knucklehead of a guy, Nabal. But here in this next act, we see how Abigail, this great lady, intercedes between David and Nabal. We pick it up in verse 14. It says, now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us and and were not and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. And they were a wall to us by night and day. And all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. So they're saying, look, these guys protected us. Verse 17. Now, therefore, consider what you will do for harm is determined against our master and against his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread and two skins of wine and five sheep already dressed and uh, five saves of roasted grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on a donkey. And she said to her servants, go on before me and see, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And so as she rode on the donkey that she went down under cover of the hill 
And there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. So when Abigail hears how her husband responded to David's request, she, after months of benefiting from David's kindness, she intervenes here. She hears that, well, David has blessed them and and, and how her husband just treated David like a jerk. And so she intervenes and she made haste and prepares a present for David and his men. Because she was a woman of good understanding, she knew that time was of an essence and something had to be done quickly. And so she throws together quite a spread. Check it out. 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, 100 clusters of raisins. I mean, she puts together this great meal. And the fact that Abigail was able to gather so much food so quickly shows how wealthy Nabal was. But it also shows... If there was that much food on hand, it makes Nabal, his being ungenerous, it just magnifies it. It makes it even worse. We pick it up in verse 23. Now, when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. And so she fell at his feet and said, on me, my Lord, and on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Listen, that's always the reaction. Give it a couple years when you marry a Nabal. It always is, man. His folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand. Now, then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. Now, she's talking here about Saul. And it's obvious that there were those in the land who had an understanding that that David was being unjustly maligned and unjustly pursued by Saul. Verse 30, and it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Now, Abigail comes here to David and she gives some gives us some good insight in how to diffuse a volatile situation. A couple things you might want to make note of. First of all, we, we see that she acted in a timely fashion. She made haste. This was an urgent situation here. 
It wasn't a situation where there was time to linger. And sometimes in a volatile type of situation. You know, it's good to pray and to wait upon the Lord. But there's sometimes situations that just you, you need to act promptly. You need to deal with it right away. You need to, to, to cut off that, that disagreement or you need to cut off that bitterness or whatever it might be. You need to, to come aggressively towards it because if, it allow, if it's allowed to linger, it's just going to grow. And it's going to cause more and more problems. And you know what? This is one of the things that we see so often in marriage. Is that a problem arises and it isn't dealt with promptly. And it gets swept under the carpet and it begins to linger. And all of a sudden those two people just begin to grow you know, more and more angry or more and more mad at each other. She does the right thing here. She acted in a timely fashion. Number two, she came in humility. She comes and she humbles herself by bowing down before David. She asks David to, to take this iniquity. That She's going to take the blame, basically, for what her husband did. Now, it wasn't that she was guilty, but I think she was calling upon David's compassion and thinking that he's not going to you know, harm a woman here. But she comes in humility, bows down before him. She refers to him in this section we just read as Lord 14 times. 14 times it was a sign of respect. that She was coming and she was giving honor to David, to, to his position, to his prominence, to the, the, the call of God upon his life. You know, it's hard to be mad at somebody who approaches you in a humble fashion, isn't it? You know, somebody comes and they've got, you know, come on, let's, you know, you know, they got their chest all sticking out like, come on, you know, I'll show you. It's like, you know, it's easy to get in a place like, you know, man, I'm going to knock this guy out. But, you know, when it when somebody comes and they're 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 humble. man, it's hard to deal with that. It's hard to stay mad at somebody who comes to you in that type of way. Number three, Abigail brought David a present. She brings this food, but she was wise enough to say that it was for the young men who follow David and not for David himself. You see, to say that it was for David himself would suggest that David was in this, that he was helping out just for the compensation. And and it would would have been an insult to David's dignity in what he was doing. So she brings this gift to bless them. Number four in verse 28, Abigail plainly, straightforwardly, she asked for forgiveness. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservants. And number five in verse 29, Abigail reminded David of his destiny. Now, this was huge. She guides David to look beyond the immediate aggravating circumstances and to look to the Lord's promise for his life. She says, the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house. You know, this is, I think, what the Holy Spirit is constantly seeking to do in our lives. When we come to that place where there's that opportunity for us to react in the flesh, for us to just venture out in the flesh, for us to respond, you know, in our flesh and just get in the flesh with something. The Holy Spirit so often he's right there, isn't he? And he's reminding us, he's reminding you, he's reminding me of our destiny. of Who we are and what's at stake if we are going to act in that way. This was perhaps 
the single greatest thing that Abigail said. She reminds David not to do something that he would later regret when God's promise was ultimately fulfilled. That this will be, she says, grief to you that you have shed blood without cause. Interesting line, blood without cause. David, there's no reason for this. What Nabal has done, it doesn't merit this type of response. She wisely asked David to consider the outcome of his present course. That this would be a stain upon his kingdom. David, the guy who massacred Nabal and all of his servants. And number six, she asked him to let the Lord settle the matter instead of taking vengeance into his own hands. She reminds David of his care, of God's care over him there in verse 29. She says, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. This is perhaps the strongest point of Abigail's appeal as she uses this wonderful term of speech here. She says that that you are like a bundle that the Lord holds closely and securely to himself. And your enemies are like rocks that the Lord will sling away. What a picture. David, you're like this bundle. And God's just got you in his arms. And he's got this plan for you. You know, that, that's, that's God's word to us. The Bible says that Jesus said of Israel that he wanted to gather them together like a mother hen would gather her chicks. The Holy Spirit would have us And remind us often, don't get in the flesh. Walk in the spirit. Don't surrender those fleshly impulses. Abigail was inviting David to act like a man who is close to the Lord. In effect, she was saying, David, your soul is wrapped up in a bundle of the life in the Lord your God. And the strength of that bundle lies in your identity in God. And you know what? That is so true. Your strength and my strength, it only lies. Our strength is found in who we are in Jesus. It's who we are in Christ. It's not how good of a worker you are or, or how much money you make or, or how great of a whatever you are. No, the strength of who you are is bound up in. It's who you are in Christ, your identity in the Lord. That's what matters. That's where our strength lies. Abigail's appeal to David was so glorious because it lifted him up instead of beating him down. David was clearly in the wrong here, and Abigail wanted to guide him into the right, but she doesn't do it by being negative. Interesting. She doesn't come and just, you know, lay into him. David, you're being an idiot. She doesn't do that. But instead, she shows him what's at stake. Abigail emphasized David's glorious calling and destiny and the general integrity of his life and simply asked him to consider if what his present course of action, if it was consistent with the destiny and the calling that God had upon his life. What was the result? 
Act 5. We see the response of a humbled man. Verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to me. And blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him. And and said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. So David realizes here, his eyes are open. All of a sudden, the rage that was in him, it it, it dissipates. It, it, It dies as he's met by these words of this woman, these wise words. And he realizes and he understands she was sent by the Lord. He knew. That Abigail was God's messenger. How many times do you and I have a brother or sister that comes into our lives playing this role, God's messenger? And they come with a word. They catch us in a moment and they say, Rob, you're being silly. Rob, you're acting foolish. Or, hey, that's not who you are. Do we listen? Do we understand, hey, this is the grace of God in this moment, in this time, bringing this person to be this messenger to get my attention because I'm not listening to the Holy Spirit. To not go forward in that way. David understands he experiences here the blessing of being kept from sin you know it is a blessing to be forgiven of our sin and we all sin we sin daily and we experience the the wonderful blessing of God's forgiveness but you know what it's an even greater blessing to be kept from sin to not have to experience it at all To be going down a road and be heading on a certain course and then to to, to be stopped in our tracks and rescued, if you would. It was Spurgeon who said, we would need to seek forgiveness of our sins less often if we would seek the Lord more diligently to be kept from sin to begin with. There is no way of keeping out of the fire of sin except by having the fire of grace blazing within the spirit. We must fight fire with fire. David is being taught a good lesson here. The lesson is that our hurt feelings never justify disobedience. Let me say that again. Our hurt feelings never justify disobedience. So often that's our rationale. That's our excuse. Man, they hurt my feelings, you know. No, two wrongs don't make a right. Our hurt feelings never justify disobedience. Well, finally, that takes us to Act 6. The judgment of a righteous God. Verse 36. Now Abigail went to Nabal. And there he was. Holding a feast in his house. Like the feast of a king. This guy's oblivious. I mean David's coming with 400 men to just wipe him out. And he's partying you know. And and I can't help but think. As I read this of 
how the world is going to be when the Lord comes back. Just oblivious, so caught up in their sin. Even now, as we wait, as we look forward to any day, the rapture of the church, in a moment we could be gone. And what does the Bible say? That in those days, the love of many is going to grow cold. And people are going to be eating and drinking and just kind of going their way and doing their thing. And one is going to be taken and the other is going to be left. And after that comes judgment, the tribulation. That's Nabal. Nabal's heart, it says, was merry within him, for he was very drunk, and therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until the morning light. And so it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him, told him these things, that his heart died within him and became like a stone. In other words, he has, he has a stroke. He hears these words. Probably, she says, you know, Look, I saved your life. David was coming with 400 men. I don't think that that's necessarily what caused the stroke. I think it was, and, and this is what I did. I took all this stuff, and she starts going through, you know, all the stuff that, that she gave to David, and it, it killed him, you know. He was a greedy guy. His servants came and said, man, David's coming, and, and, and he's like, ah, oh, who cares? Sad. And then verse 38, then... It happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And so we see here that God strikes Nabal dead. He lives up to his name. He's a fool and his life is in imminent danger. His wife knows it. All of his servants know it, but he doesn't know it. He eats and gets drunk as if all is fine. He doesn't have a care in the world. Again, Nabal is the picture of the sinner who goes on rejecting God without any regard to the coming judgment. It's sad. Jesus may have had Nabal in mind when he taught the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. You know that story of the man who pulled in a great harvest, built bigger barns, so he could store everything, got everything stored, and he was kicking back, you know, saying to his soul, eat, drink, and be merry, man, you've got it made. And God appears to him that night, and he says to him, you're a fool. That was Nabal. You're a fool, he said, because this very night, your soul is required of you, and you are not rich toward God. You're not rich toward God. Can I encourage you? Can I encourage me? Can I encourage us tonight? Let's be a people. In this day and age, you know, so often and even in the church today, there's so much emphasis being placed on the church pursuing self-gratification. What's in it for me and how's it going to bless me? And, and in many, many ways as, as a, a church, as a whole, we've become so me-centered. That's not being rich toward God. Being rich toward God is that heart that says, you know what, I realize that my identity, who I am, and, and how, how rich I am, it's, it's all about who I am in Christ. And so I, I want to get to know him more, that I might love him more deeply, and I want to serve him with everything that is within me. I realize that, that Jesus said that, that we can't take anything with us, but we can sure send it ahead by the things that we do. And that's what I want to be about. I want to be about the business of the kingdom. Are you rich toward God tonight? 
The chapter ends with David marrying Abigail. We pick it up in verse 39. It says, So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept his servant from evil, for the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. And then she arose and bowed her face to the earth and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And so Abigail arose in haste and rode on a donkey and attended by five of her maidens. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And David also took this gal of Jezreel. And so both of them were his wives. But Saul and had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Gallium. Now, it's also quite possible that David, in taking Abigail here as a wife, that he inherited all of Nabal's wealth as well. And uh, most commentators believe that that is the case. But here we see David in this place. Reacts in the flesh. He's going to take matters into his own hands. And God sends him a messenger. And he heeds the message. And he pulls back. And God works. And he ends up being blessed. And his destiny and his name isn't tarnished by that. Good example for us to follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this story. And how it ministers to our hearts. And God we desire Lord. To be a people. Who are not overcome by anger. Who are not overcome by the flesh. When our pride gets wounded Lord. That we would allow ourselves to be humbled. And Lord we thank you for your messengers. We thank you Lord for your Holy Spirit. That speaks to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be a people rich towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.